Welcome to Done and Done. I am Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. In this episode, we're going to talk about the brutal murder of Martha Moxley. Mischief Night, October 30th, 1975 in Greenwich, Connecticut, was a terrible night. Martha Moxley, a 15-year-old child, is found murdered in the morning light, and it is a horrific crime. In the enclaved and gated community of Bellhaven, this sort of thing just does not happen. There is no quick justice for Martha, and the power and privilege of a very wealthy and connected family will keep this case unsolved for decades. Dominic Dunn will write a thinly veiled fictional account of her murder within his novel A Season in Purgatory. Dominic will also write for Vanity Fair in October 2000 his nonfiction piece called Trail of Guilt. Martha's case is one that's very close to Dominic in a number of ways. This is a new level of his development as a warrior for justice, not only in finding some peace for Martha's family, but also driving forward some type of justice for this terrible act. Let's investigate. Dunn's initial launch in Vanity Fair, remember as well the two Mrs. Grenvilles has been released in 1985, he will write another book in the late 80s called People Like Us, as well as An Inconvenient Woman, which are definitely Hollywood scandals. But in 1993, the book that really begins to set him up and apart for this warrior for justice Quest is released, and this novel is called A Season in Purgatory. It is about a teenage girl brutally murdered by a member of a wealthy and powerful family, and pretty much how power and money can buy you out of never having to pay for your crimes. That's the book, but what is the story behind the novel, and how much is really thinly veiled versus how much is really true? So, in telling this from Dominic's perspective, Within the year 1991, another famous member of this associated family, William Kennedy Smith, is on trial for rape in a Florida courtroom. And our man, Dominic, is there. And the rumor starts going around in the courtroom that William Kennedy Smith was in fact at the Skakel home, his cousins, on that infamous October 30th, 1975 mischief night, the night of Martha Moxley's murder. Dominic has some history with the family. Who are the Skakels? From Dominic's Trail of Guilt piece, I will read a little bit here. Rushton Skakel had attended Canterbury, the Catholic boarding school in New Milford, Connecticut, which was then for boys only. I had also attended Canterbury. Rushton, or Rush as he was called, was a few years ahead of me, although I did not know him or even remember him until I saw him at Robert Kennedy and Ethel Skakel's wedding in Greenwich, Connecticut on June 17, 1950. I was not there on a direct invitation from the Skakels, but as the date of my then-girlfriend Barbara Cahill, who had been a classmate of Ethel's at Manhattanville College of the Sacred Heart, the school of choice for proper Catholic girls from rich families. We arrived from New York by yacht for the wedding and reception. 
I remember being dazzled by the beauty of the Skakel estate on Lake Avenue. The bridesmaids were Skakel sisters and Kennedy sisters and a cousin of Ethel's. It was the first time I ever saw Rose Kennedy, the wife of the former ambassador to the court of St. James. She wore a silk dress from Paris and carried a parasol of the same material. She was the absolute queen of Irish Catholic society, and people stepped back as she made her way through the nearly 2,000 guests, greeting friends and meeting strangers. Jack and Bobby Kennedy, the best man and groom in cutaways, already possessed the glamour and looks that were shortly to fascinate the nation. From every point of view, it was a marriage made in heaven, except that, even then, there was backstage trouble between the Skakel and Kennedy families, which exists to this day. The Skakel money was from Great Lakes Carbon, once one of the largest privately held companies in the world. The Kennedy fortune came primarily from liquor. By some reports, the Skakels were even richer than the Kennedys. Ethel's father, George Skakel, despised Bobby's father, Joe Kennedy. In his book, The Other Mrs. Kennedy, Jerry Oppenheimer quotes Skakel referring to Joe Kennedy as, quote, low-life Irish trash, unquote. This love-hate relationship between the families is also mentioned in a book proposal that Michael Skakel wrote in 1998, almost two years before he was indicted for the murder of Martha Moxley. He writes that his maternal grandfather was betrayed, slandered, and vilified by Joseph Kennedy. The Skakels are right up there with the Kennedys in the tragedy department. Ethel and Rushton's parents were killed in a private plane crash in 1955. Their brother George was also killed in a plane crash, and his wife choked to death on a piece of meat at a small dinner party. Rushton's son Tommy, the longtime suspect, was thrown from a moving car when he was four and sustained severe head injuries. Rushton's wife, Anne Reynolds Skakel, died an agonizing death from cancer in 1973, leaving him to raise his unruly tribe of six sons and a daughter. One of Ann Skakel's golf clubs was the weapon that killed Martha Moxley. Who is Martha Moxley? Martha is a beautiful, lively 15-year-old girl new to Bellhaven. Her parents had moved to Bellhaven from San Francisco a little over a year ago, and the Moxleys are well off. This is a gated, secured neighborhood with some of the highest real estate prices in Connecticut. There's a lot of money with a lot of people going on in the neighborhood, but the Skakel family lives across the street from the Moxleys. They have three generations of money and power as well as Kennedy connections. So what happens the night of the crime? October 30th, the night before Halloween, is a night called Mischief Night in Greenwich. It goes by some other names depending on where you live, but this is where you can expect the usual pranks from kids. Soap, toilet paper, shaving cream, teenage kids out having fun the night before Halloween. Martha, on this night, is out with some of her friends in the neighborhood and ends up around 9 p.m. or so getting to the Skakel's house, pretty close to her house, just diagonally across the street. Because this night, Martha's mom is okay to let her go out but Martha missed curfew the week before and got into a little bit of trouble. 
and she's begged her mother on this night to please let her go out, and she promises to be home by 10 o'clock. I promise you can trust me, Mom. Martha is determined not to be late, and she will tell the friends she's with over and over that night, time is a factor. She will continue to ask them, what time is it? She is determined to be at home by 10 p.m., period. And right around 10 p.m. in the neighborhood, while Martha's mother is painting trim on the windowsills in her master bedroom, Martha's mom hears weird voices outside, some strange voices, as well as dogs in the neighborhood starting to bark, starting to react. And it stays this way for a while, except for one dog that's typically, usually the loudest, the Skakel's dog. The Skakel's dog never makes a sound. And Martha is not home at 10 o'clock. She's not home at 10.30. She's not home by 11.45 when her older brother John gets home from his later curfew. Mom has now picked up the telephone and calling around. No one knows where Martha is. Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mom, will send John out to drive around and look for Martha. By 4 a.m., they have called the police to report her missing. No one goes missing in Bellhaven. It is a privileged and private and safe community. By dawn's light, Martha is still missing, but will be found under a group of pine trees on the Moxley property About 12.30 in the afternoon, she is found by a friend of hers cutting through the property line to join the groups of people who are now assembling to search for Martha. Martha is found brutally beaten with a six-iron Tony Pina golf club, which is broken into four pieces, only three of which are present at the scene. One of these pieces has been used as a dagger in her neck. In addition to the clear overkill of the crime, the weapon of opportunity, there is also indication of a sexual aspect to the crime, but she was not sexually assaulted. Evidence from the scene suggests that Martha was first attacked at the top of her driveway, dragged about 20 feet, and brutally assaulted. Then her body is dragged another 60 to 80 feet face down, to rest under those pine trees where she is found the following afternoon. This is a brutal crime. A monster has done this. And the Greenwich Police Department are not at all experienced with actual crime scenes. And they are going to mess up this case for, um, from now, like 25 years. And they aren't really pressing on the most likely suspect who is Tommy Skakel, the 17-year-old across-the-street kid who was the last one seen with Martha about 9.30. They were roughhousing. There was maybe some making out. But the Skakels are using their pulling power. And the police instead are looking at, this must be a stranger that has done this. One of us could not have done this. So they turn to the newest employee in the Skakel home. It is his first day on the job being nanny to this pack of seven children, the Skakel kids. It is literally the worst first day on a job ever. The police blunder a bit, and nothing ever really happens with the case. The Moxleys are devastated, 
And they have a pretty good idea of what happened. The neighbors have a pretty good idea of what happened. And high society has a pretty good idea of what happened. But no one is going to go after the most powerful family in town. And the Greenwich police are like, "Eh." and the Moxleys will end up moving away because it is all just broken and sad and horrible. And then the case gets dropped. It's no longer being investigated. Taking us out of the 1970s, let's move back up to 1991 and that trial of William Kennedy Smith. Dominic Dunn hears these rumors and is like, whatever did happen to that case? And he begins to investigate. Remember, Dominic knows the Skakels. He was at the wedding of Ethel and Bobby in 1950. He and Rushton went to the same school, Canterbury. Connecticut Catholic families, y'all, are very tightly wound. And Dunn's curiosity really gets him spun up in taking a look at this case, and he will reach out first to Dorothy Moxley. She will agree to meet with him, and Dominic talks with her about wanting to rile up some justice in this case, and Dorothy is just defeated. She believes that there's never going to be justice for her beloved daughter, and Dominic will share at this time that his own daughter was also murdered on October 30th just a few years later. Their girls are born only a year apart. Dominic Dunn is a very sympathetic character in this. And even though he probably would have researched the story anyway, Dorothy will agree to him wanting to investigate. So he does. He begins investigating and writing. But as a parallel thread here, the Greenwich Police Department has also heard this rumor of perhaps William Kennedy Smith being at the Skakel home that night. And the police department is like, maybe we need to look at that case again. Just post-it note here, Dr. Henry Lee at this time is doing some amazing things with DNA. DNA in the early 90s is breaking through very much as an investigative technique. So the Greenwich Police Department will begin investigating the crime again. So Dominic, on the heels of his last two bestsellers, which have each been made into a miniseries, he really gets going on this case. He will write his novel A Season in Purgatory. Naturally, names are changed, details are changed, but in Dominic Dunn's thinly veiled account, he will pin Martha's murder on Tommy Skakel. A Season in Purgatory is released, a claim is his, and it is a bestseller too and garnering some attention taking this part from Dominic writing in Trail of Guilt about this next event. During my book tour for A Season in Purgatory, a tall, handsome, well-dressed African-American woman came up to me in the Tattered Cover bookstore in Denver and said that she had information about the Moxley case. We met later at the Brown Palace Hotel. She was a forensic psychologist, and early on she had been hired by the Greenwich police to work on the case. For some reason, which she did not explain, she left or was let go. She had with her the autopsy pictures of Martha Moxley's body, which no one but the police had ever seen. They were large photographs, about 11 by 14 inches, and simply awful to behold. It is one thing to discuss being bludgeoned by a golf club. It is quite another to see the effects of such an attack. One of the blows had taken off a portion of the right side of Martha's scalp, which was seen hanging by a piece of skin down over her face. 
you could see the wound where a short pointed piece of the shaft had been stabbed into the side of her neck. In one full shot, you could see her jeans had been pulled down. I felt faint. He had to have been drunk or stoned to have done that to her, I said, not wanting to see any more. I felt that this woman, whose name I did not write in my notebook at her request, and which I subsequently forgot, knew more than she was telling me. But I liked her. I trusted her. As she was leaving, she said, It wasn't Tommy. She repeated it. Up till then, Tommy Skakel had been the major suspect in the case. I was convinced that he had done it, and I had said so on television. Her words haunted me. What happens next? Dunn will continue writing. Back home at my house in Connecticut after the book tour, I was visited by several members of the police team involved in the Moxley case, including Frank Garr, who had played a major part in the investigation from the beginning. They brought me a Connecticut Division of Criminal Justice coffee mug, a Connecticut State Police plaque for my wall, and a Connecticut State Police t-shirt. They asked me to stop criticizing the police work on the case, which I agreed to do. They said it wasn't helping in their ongoing investigation. In the pleasant conversation that ensued, I happened to mention that I had seen photographs of the autopsy. They looked stunned. I said someone had shown them to me in Denver. I saw them look at one another, very upset. She stole those pictures, one said to another. I do not know the mystery behind that story, but there certainly is one. All of my attempts to track down my informant have come to naught. In May 1996, an excellent miniseries of A Season in Purgatory, produced by Aaron Spelling, David Brown, and Buzz Berger, was telecast on CBS. The network publicized the show every day for a week before it went on, saying it was based on an actual crime in Greenwich, Connecticut. Newspaper stories talked about the real murder in relation to the miniseries. People were soon discussing the case regularly and openly, but there never seemed to be any progress in solving it. Seven months after the miniseries aired, an extraordinary thing happened. I had a call at my New York apartment from Bernice Ellis, the receptionist at Vanity Fair, who, along with her other duties, monitors calls that come in for the magazine's writers. She knows how to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's about the Moxley case, she said. I think you should talk to this guy. I did, and we made a lunch date for the next day at Patroon, a restaurant on East 46th Street. Carrying a manila envelope, he came into the restaurant wearing jeans and a t-shirt. That wasn't quite the dress code for Patroon, but they let him in. I hadn't imagined talking to him on the phone how young he was going to be. He was 24, but could have easily passed for 17. A recent university graduate and fledgling author, he had already had an article published in a national magazine. This is the story he told me. In 1991, Rushton Skakel, wanting to take the spotlight off suspicions of his sons, had hired a private detective service in New York called Sutton Associates to investigate Martha Moxley's murder. These agents, who were all former detectives or police officers, signed confidentiality agreements, never to reveal anything they learned in the course of their investigation. 
They were given access to the seven Skakel children and were guaranteed cooperation in a way that the Greenwich police never had been. During the process, Michael Skakel, who had never been a suspect because he had an alibi that he had been at a cousin's house watching a Monty Python movie at the time of the murder, changed his story completely. He told the detectives that he had climbed a tree outside Martha's bedroom window and masturbated. The agency worked for nearly three years on the assignment. My source told me that the bill for the private investigation was $750,000, and I have subsequently heard a figure even higher than that. When it came time to give the results to Skakel, the agency knew that it had to put all of its findings in a cohesive report that he could read and digest. Through a friend, the young recent graduate got the job of putting the detective's findings, from psychiatric reports to interviews, into a narrative form with a timeline and profiles of Skakel family members. When the report was presented to Rushton Skakel, it indicated that Tommy had not killed Martha Moxley. Michael, the fourth Skakel son, who had never been a suspect, had in all probability killed her. The report suggested that Tommy may have helped his brother move the body. Michael and Tommy were very competitive and fought constantly. Michael had a crush on Martha, so Tommy moved in on his territory. That was the way they behaved. Rushton Skakel, an acknowledged alcoholic, was presumably undone by the findings. He paid the agency, and the report was stashed away, never to see the light of day. But the young man with whom I was having lunch had become emotionally involved in the story he was hired to put together. It was my perception that he had developed an enormous sympathy for Martha Moxley and her mother, and that he was outraged that justice would not be done, that money could make a difference even in a case of murder. Because he was hired several years after the private detectives, no one had thought to have him sign the confidentiality oath. He had read my book and seen me on television, so he secretly appropriated the report and called me at Vanity Fair. Sitting there in Patroon, he handed me the Sutton Report. Whoa. Dominic will give a copy of the Sutton Report to Frank Gar at the Greenwich Police Department, who doesn't do a darn thing with it. And this 24-year-old kid is kind of scared for his life. He's taking a huge chance in letting this go. There are only so many people who have ever had their eyes on this information. Dominic promises never to reveal his name and keep everything very top secret, but he will make one phone call. And that phone call is to Dorothy Moxley. And he's excited. He, he can't contain his excitement that, hey, people are finally starting to talk about this case. The wheels are moving, but you can't tell anyone. Let's just see where this goes. Dorothy will tell one person, tells another, and immediately, through the grapevine of the small Bellhaven community, the Skakels are aware of what is happening. And the young man feels sold out, and he's very angry. Dominic will apologize, 
and ends up even before Michael Skakel's arraignment, because he will be arraigned and found guilty, until he's not, Dominic will call the kid and thank him, and this is all because of you. And that young anonymous clerk will call Dominic back and thank him. Everyone's feelings did work out in the end. It had not been so at the time of the writing. And another parallel thread here. Back in 1995, Dominic is in Los Angeles in the courtroom for the O.J. Simpson trial and does get to be acquainted with Mark Furman. He's not friendly with him necessarily, but does end up gaining a pretty good respect for the actual skills Mark Furman has in investigating and detecting and feels like most everyone else that you got a little railroaded in that case. But like it happens, after the O.J. Simpson trial, Furman is really looking to find a way to redeem his reputation after the disaster that was the O.J. Simpson trial. And there's a book editor that will call Dominic. Like, do you have any hot takes on maybe a cold case that Mark Furman can use? These awesome sleuthing skills that he has. And Dominic is like, I got your case. Dominic will meet with Mark Furman, share his information. Remember, Dominic has been haunted by this case since that first day at the William Kennedy Smith trial, most especially after the tattered cover bookstore lady. Dominic will set Furman up with the connections so he is able to investigate in the tiny town of Greenwich. The Greenwich Police Department is pretty angry. They are not going to assist in Furman's investigation. But Mark Furman is going to take the case and he's going to run with it. And he will write his book, released in 1998, called Murder in Greenwich. Dominic Dunn will write the introduction for that book. Also, in 1998, there is another book. Well, a book proposal. Michael Skakel is writing, in this year, pretty much confessing his role in all of the crime within this book proposal. 1998, big year. There's one more development. There's a local man, Timothy Dumas, who will write a book called Greentown, which is an insider view of the case. Timothy Dumas centers around the district attorney, who has been around since the murder and has never wanted to make a case against anyone. He sort of gets ousted and there's a new DA that comes in. And maybe now we're going to get some momentum on the case. Everything's being investigated again. Lips are a little looser. And seriously, all of the guilty people in this just keep making themselves look more guilty. Michael Skakel will be indicted in 2000, and it is also determined that year that he will be tried for this crime as an adult. It's going to take until 2002 to get this case to trial. It is a three-week-long trial. Michael Skakel is found guilty. There is a lot of Kennedy family support in the courtroom. The family circles around. Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. shows up. Michael Skakel is found guilty in this trial. He's sentenced to 20 years to life. But with money and power and privilege, justice sometimes goes on the back burner. There are appeals. There are so many appeals. This is years of filings and more court filings. And one of these filings and appeals will even make it to the Supreme Court. A judge will order a new trial 
as it is determined that Michael Skakel's original representation was ineffective. After 10 years in jail, Michael Skakel is free on bail, which has been set at $1.2 million. Over the course of the next few years, his conviction is vacated. It is reinstated. It is vacated again. It is reinstated. There's a lot of back and forth. But getting Michael Skakel tried again is proving to be very difficult and extremely complicated. Leaving us with one of the last updates that, yay, a retrial is in fact possible. But then, vacated again. This will get appealed again. This is how the system works for the people who have the money to play the system, y'all. It's so frustrating. In January 2019, the Supreme Court will decide not to hear the case and keeps the current order of vacating the conviction standing. So Michael Skakel is free, even though he will serve some kind of time, 10 years, which is more than most people in powerful, privileged families see. I do give a lot of credit for those 10 years that Skakel will serve to our man Nick for being curious and asking questions and being pesky enough to bring some justice to this case. Maybe in a way that even his own daughter, Dominique, did not get. Dorothy Moxley will call Dominic Dunn her angel and will give him the credit, saying none of any of it would have happened without you. Dominic Dunn, in turn, will give a lot of credit to the people who came to him with the information, from the kid with the Sutton report to the lady with the autopsy photographs, from the connections he has within the Bellhaven. Greenwich, Connecticut society set. It turns out secrets do not stay secret for very long, and time sure does have a way of shaking things out. That, my friends, is probably the first leg of this particular journey in Done and Done. This connects to a number of other stories. We're going to hear about Martha Moxley some more. We're going to hear about Kennedy's in the future as well. But let's go ahead and wrap up for today. Thank you so much for joining me and spending your time with me, as well as your kind words and your feedback and your emails too. The outro at the end of this episode does contain contact information. Let me hear from you. We will be back for another Done and Done episode in two weeks. And until then, stay curious, y'all, and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends. 